Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegemelch. Joining us for our special holiday episode. Uh, It's actually not a holiday episode. It's just December, and I guess everything's holiday in December. But it is special. We have two great guests today. We have Chloe Demarovsky from DRI International talking about really the big picture of business continuity, what that means across all different sectors. And then we get down to the local level and the organizational level with Jim Paturis from the Yale New Haven Health System and their Center for Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response. We've got great conversation, a lot of great insights. Enough with me talking. Let's get right into it, and I'll see you on the other side. Joining me now is Chloe Demrowski. She's the president and chief executive officer for the Disaster Recovery Institute International, a nonprofit that helps organizations prepare for and recover from disasters in business continuity and related fields. They serve more than 15,000 certified professionals in over 100 countries. She's authored numerous articles, appeared on Bloomberg TV, MSNBC, Fox, among others, served as an expert source for The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, New York Times, and many, many more. She's on the adjunct faculty at New York University, teaching graduate-level students on public-private partnerships, uh, speaks four languages, and I'm just scratching the surface on the bio here, but Chloe, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, so for folks who may not be as familiar with DRI, uh, do you mind talking a little bit about what is DRI, what's your role there, sort of what they are to the, to the broader community? Absolutely. So DRI is the leading nonprofit in this space. We help organizations prepare for and recover from disasters. The way we do that is by providing education, certification, and thought leadership in business continuity and related fields. You know, increasingly we're talking a lot about cybersecurity, about enterprise risk management, and disaster recovery is is a uh, pretty cool again. It's a testament to our legacy uh, and our age. We were founded in 1988. That's why we're called the Disaster Recovery Institute, because that's sort of the origin of the field. Uh, We're the oldest and largest organization of our kind. Um, As you mentioned, we have 15,000 certified professionals globally. They reside in over 100 countries. Uh, We hold training classes in 50 countries at 14 languages, and we, because, um, 40% of our certified professionals reside outside of the United States. So increasingly, we've pivoted to uh, adopt this, uh, our responsibility as being a truly international organization representing professionals in this field. You know, it's such an interesting thing being, you know, working with all these different folks on kind of the resilience of their organizations. Uh, Coming from a public health planner and more a government planner from my perspective, it's sort of something that we always say is really important and kind of tell folks, yeah, you got to work on that, but to actually be working with them on that, kind of setting the standards, doing the trainings. Um, from, from your perspective, what does good business continuity look like when we say that? What, what should a company be looking to do? Uh, how do we define that? Right, so good business continuity and establishing what it looks like is really the core of what DRI is responsible for defining. As you mentioned, uh, governments spend a lot of time maybe assessing the need for it and then putting that out there kind of as a public good saying, okay, it's important for organizations to have 
good continuity to be prepared. And then they're sort of left to figure out how to do that. Well, that's where a professional organization like ours comes into play. We serve as a platform for providing professionals an opportunity to define best practice. Because often, it's a relatively small team at organizations, even large organizations, that is responsible for this in-house. And rather than them having to kind of create, reinvent the wheel by themselves sitting in their office about how to do this, it's much more helpful for them to have a reference point for the best practices and how to actually do this. And they come to us for that. You know, I, I appreciate that, too, that talking about how these large companies, it comes down to uh, potentially a relatively small team of people. I was working with another um, private sector organization, large global brand, and it was sort of a similar thing on how, you know, it, providing assistance to individuals who are sort of at the center of these issues can be a catalyst for larger change across the organization. Yeah, business continuity can be a really interesting field for people who want or are very curious about getting a broad perspective of how the organization operates as a whole. Because in order to figure out what the core competency of the business is that needs to be protected in order to continue to do business under duress, they need to be able to do a, an enterprise-wide analysis and they get to work for, with everybody all the way from you know the board of directors level and then all the way down to the bottom. Uh, to figure that out. So it touches all aspects of the business, even though it is a relatively small team. So it can be really interesting for a professional who, who is curious about how that might work and what organizations really do to protect themselves under duress. And you know, I know when we when we when I say we people like myself, uh, which may just be me, <laughs> think of business <laughs> continuity. Um, you know, uh, what first comes to mind is a lot of internal understanding, as you mentioned, of the organization, top to bottom. How do you keep the business operating, the profit centers operating, um, and then all the support structure that's required to do that? What are those essential functions? Uh, but I'm I'm learning more and more in working with some some other organizations, both government and private sector, that business continuity seems to be expanding more to outside the organization and the vendor relationships that they rely on, and even in some advanced cases, the community and the public sector partners. Are, are you guys seeing that more and more, or is this just a new revelation on my end and it's always been there? Uh, no, it, the, the industry definitely has shifted, and a lot of that is really our fault. Uh, like I said, we're, right. we are the, the standard setter for business continuity, and the way that we do that is through something called the Professional Practices for Business Continuity Management, and this is our standard. We're an ANSI-accredited standards development organization, and we take that responsibility very seriously. We also work together with uh, ISO, International Standards Organization, on this work as well, but what we do um, is maintain actually our own standard, which really gets into the nitty-gritty of how to. It doesn't just define, okay, you should have this. It actually tells you how to build a business continuity program. And that mandate has grown in scope. So original business continuity had a lot to do with relocation of the business. So if something mm -hmm. happens to your facility and people need a place to go to work that has heat, that has electricity, that has computers, whatever it is that they need to be able to continue to get up and running in some sort of alternate workspace. That's traditional business continuity, but business continuity management has shifted and it's now so much more than that. 
Yeah, and it's, you know, I think, too, with so, so many disasters hitting and things like that, it's providing a lot more awareness even outside of these groups. Uh, really interesting, too, on sort of, you know, again, coming from a, a more of a public sector-oriented role, we think a lot of terms of uh, legislation and legal requirements and regulation, but that actually these standard-setting organizations have a tremendous amount of influence um, as well, too, and, and are respected. So in addition to that, uh, what, what are the reasons that a company would or should engage in business continuity? Uh, what benefits uh, are they going to see from this? Sure. So companies are, are going to act because of one of two reasons, either because their regulators require it or because their customers ask for it. And in the case of business continuity, it's typically a, a combination of both. Uh, when we analyzed who our certified professionals are and where they work, uh, the largest groups are actually at financial institutions, government bodies, and consulting firms, and then followed by healthcare. And what these groups have in common is they're typically highly regulated industries, financial institutions and healthcare in particular. And then the consulting firms often will work for these types of clients to make sure that they are in compliance with what they're being required to do by their regulators. You mentioned that business continuity is no longer just concerned with kind of internal strategy and internal rules. It's also dealing more with external actors like vendors and suppliers. A lot of that is coming out of regulations within the financial industry to assess your your supply chain and uh, making sure that you're contro controlling for your vendors and the vendors of your vendors. Uh, so it does become this really wide-reaching discipline and a lot of that is being driven by regulatory requests. But it's not just regulatory, it's also customer demand. Customers saying, well, why would I want to do business with you if I can't be sure that you're going to be there when I need you most, particularly with something like online banking. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want to see is, you know, your your bank is uh, not able to, to provide you with online banking services that day. That's not acceptable. You need to be able to access your money at all times. And the bank just can't say mea culpa, uh, both because of regulatory reasons and, and customer requests. Yeah, you know, that's that's an interesting point, too. And I, I want to hit on also, you mentioned the vendors of the vendors. Uh, was, I was talking with someone at, uh, in the financial industry, and that was one of the discoveries uh, that they were finding is that the, um, you know, you go out one level to who's supplying you with uh, services, and then you go one further out than that. And you expect it to get, you know, exponentially bigger, like a like a tree sort of growing out. And actually what happened was at the weak point was two or three cycles out where a lot of these service providers were all reliant on the same vendors for themselves. I don't know if that makes sense. No, uh, definitely. I mean, it, a lot of these vendors and vendors of vendors are really small companies. Mm -hmm. And having a, a dedicated business continuity person or cyber expert on staff is is becomes less and less likely the smaller the organization but a lot of these really large companies are very reliant on them. We saw a great example and very public example of this with the Target breach. Mm -hmm. You know, their point of sale systems were breached, but the way that that actually got into the system was through an invoice sent by a trusted HVAC vendor. Mm. And so it was some malware that was implanted into that invoice that then got them into the Target system and then they found their way all the way, once they were already inside, they found their way all the way into the point of sale systems. So this is exactly the kind of behavior and problems that uh, you know, the regulators are trying to prevent. And it's not just regulators, like I said, it's also because consumers are getting smarter and saying, okay, uh, if I'm going to trust you with this level of data and access, what are you yeah. doing to protect it? And that that's really key. And yeah. so one of the ways that we help uh, to do that and what, what we're seeing increasingly is that in vendor contracts, 
um, not only are, first of all, they're including language saying, I need to see your business continuity plan. Then they're going a step further and saying, I want to exercise your, jointly exercise your business continuity plan and work with you to help you to build it. And uh, not only are you going to have a business continuity plan, you've done a business impact analysis and you have strategies in place, but you have them, you have done these things as they are defined by DRI International, which is the standard setter for best practice. Because otherwise, a small company might just say, yeah, 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 I have a plan. But mm, what kind mm-hmm. of plan? How do they define it? You want to make sure that you're defining it for, for your vendor or supplier and not just trusting that they have the same concept of what a plan is or what an acceptable plan is that you do. Yeah, and the, the economic analysis behind this, whether for the uh, industry as a whole or the individual organizations, I think has gotten a lot more robust as well, too, to really sort of show the cost benefit for all of this and the vulnerability of not acting. But along those lines, too, um, I know when we hear business continuity, um, and again, it might just be me when I say we, but <laughs> the... Um, you know, you think business, you think for-profit, you think in McDonald's, Target, Walmart, you know, these these large corporations. But how does this also apply to nonprofits and government agencies? Well, nonprofits and government agencies also have operations that need to continue. Mm-hmm. So they have continuity of operations, for example, which looks an awful lot like business continuity. We actually just revised the professional practices for business continuity management. And one of the things that we did was we actually changed the word company or organization to entity uh, throughout because we do do recognize that we have a lot of public sector, a lot of nonprofit, a lot of even say religious institutions that might be using this framework. And we wanted to make sure that it was inclusive and not too private sector focused, but that the framework could fit any type of entity uh, that needs it. And we are seeing, an increase in this in, for example, the nonprofit space, suddenly resilience has become a really trendy topic. Some of that has to do with the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction, Mm -hmm. which, uh, by the way, we were part of the uh, business and industry delegation for those negotiations. And Mm -hmm. so we're really pleased to see this kind of setting a standard for national uh, frameworks. And uh, so the the nonprofits, especially the large nonprofits that do a lot of work around the UN space, suddenly realized this kind of need for resilience, and they wanted to create resilience training programs, community resilience outreach training and awareness. But then that made them look at their own organizations and say, oh, gee, do we have this? Mm -hmm. What happens if our core competencies are threatened? Do we have backups for our processes? A lot of nonprofits, of course, run uh, with a a lot of donor dependency, with not Mm -hmm. a lot of capital, uh, especially not a lot of reserves. And if their programs were to go down, it could be life-threatening, potentially, for a a lot of the constituents that they they serve or, or the individuals that they serve, communities that they serve. So it's really important for them to have continuity as well. Yeah, and that's a point at uh, the my other job, the one that I actually get a paycheck for, for at the Columbia <laughs> University, the National Center for Disaster Preparedness. We've been looking more and more at uh, business continuity for community human service organizations um, and how, uh, you know, in, in working with a lot of these groups, there's this sense that, well, you know, we don't want to be disaster responders. We, we're not a disaster response organization, but when we're looking at Meals on Wheels and after school programs and how vital they are to the community recovery that uh, that there's a social cost, that there's a cost to society for them being down in addition to their their business cost. And, and of course, the same can be said of, of any of the drivers of the economy, for-profit or non-profit, um, but government and non-profits also have that, may not be as trained
thing to look at it in dollars and cents, but the impact and the value to the community and to the overall economy. So, right. I, and I think you really hit on it, Jeff, uh, with saying that they don't want to be d- disaster responders. None of us really want to be disaster responders. When we get to that level of disaster, that means that we've done a lot of things wrong because mm-hmm. natural hazards are going to happen. Disaster is when we fail to prepare for them and defend our communities against hazards that, by all accounts, we should be expecting at this point. So. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work that we can do in terms of the resilience front uh, as institutions to make sure that we are planning effectively so that we are not in the position of being disaster responders. The same thing is true with the government, right? With FEMA, for example. The last thing you want is for FEMA to have to come in and and, uh, and provide for you mm-hmm. in the aftermath of a disaster. And they say the same thing. You know, 85% of critical infrastructure in this country is in the hands of the private sector. It's not under governmental control. So private sector actors who are more prepared and are able to recover without needing some sort of government intervention uh, because of their planning and because of their culture of preparedness and so forth are less likely to require uh, government resources to help them to recover, then the government re- resources, which are increasingly stressed, there's never enough of them, those yeah. resources can be reallocated to the most vulnerable communities who actually need them. And the community is going to recover faster because their day-to-day infrastructure is back up and running because the private sector organizations were prepared. And then also uh, the community will will get more of the, the government-level support that it needs. Yeah, you know, one of the things we look at a lot, too, at our centers is this notion of the denominator problem. And, and, you know, we're really good at talking about how many houses have been built, how many, um, you know, gallons of water have been distributed, but then that denominator on how much is actually needed and what is the, the percent towards how close are you to 100%. And I think what you're speaking to is also a message that, that especially with smaller nonprofits, is that, you know, we don't need you to be responders. We just need you to be open and keep doing what you're doing. Exactly. Because if you're providing meals to elderly residents, if your oxygen supply companies are able to rotate through, that's keeping people out of the denominator. It's keeping them out of the shelter um, and sustains the environment where people are able to care for themselves and live their lives by themselves. Um, so it, it really does intersect in a very tangible way to setting up the parameters that these response agencies and emergency management agencies have to work with. Yeah, it does. And it's really uh, so much an awareness issue. You know, you do hear FEMA saying and other organizations saying that you're not likely to see a a first responder in a a serious incident for like 72 hours. That means that the first responder is going to be a family member, a friend, a colleague, uh, some combination thereof. And so uh, the ability to understand incident response planning is something that everybody needs to be aware of and, and participate in. And so that, that kind of human element training is a really essential part. And then also making sure that our systems and our institutions are robust and resilient and are, have some redundancy built in, uh, have, you know, are hopefully working so that when something does go wrong, that it doesn't completely disrupt their ability to continue, uh, whether they're a small organization or the very largest. To bring it to some contemporary events too, I think this is a lot of, uh, at least what we're seeing, I'm curious from your perspective as well too, in in Puerto Rico, as compared to some of the areas on the mainland, is that a lot of the disruptions 
to the supply chains, the disruptions to the communities, the disruptions to the electrical grid, and the kind of isolation of the island itself is, um, uh, again, sort of speaks to that, where you may have manufacturing facilities that are intact, but with the community disruption, um, sort of uh, getting a little bit further out from the, the industry or the business itself, they're not able to reopen. They're not able to function at capacity. There was the, the story about the um, the ports where, you know, you had sufficient stuff at the ports, but you didn't have fuel for the trucks. And if you had fuel for the trucks, you didn't have drivers for the trucks, things like that. And, and again, you know, you put it on an island, you can't just drive there from a neighboring state, things like that. Are, are you seeing similar things in the disasters or what kinds of sort of successes and challenges uh, are coming across your radar? Well, to be totally frank about it, what's happening in Puerto Rico is disgusting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it shows a complete lack of, of resilience and investment uh, that that is shocking, uh, considering that this these are American citizens, this is American soil, and we talk a lot about <laughs> national preparedness and to have let Puerto Rico get to the position that it is in now, uh, when we can clearly expect uh, that hurricanes will happen. Yes, this was a big hurricane, mm-hmm. but that still does not excuse uh, what is happening. I mean, they were so vulnerable because all of their infrastructure was breaking down. They had no budget. They were having fiscal problems for a, a really long time. And so those are kind of the, the chronic stressors that will lead to an organization being pushed over the edge at the slightest shock. And so that's what we're really seeing in Puerto Rico. And there were a lot of private sector organizations that took, a, t- took advantage of some of the, you know, the governmental policies that in- incentivized them to locate in Puerto Rico, usually tax structures that then you know, didn't necessarily maybe help the island in terms of some jobs, but definitely helped to uh, lead to this infrastructure problem of not having the tax base to be able to build proper infrastructure to support these, these, uh, these organizations and also the communities to make the, the island a viable long-term solution. So, you know, some financial institutions have gone down there. It's much easier for them to kind of pick up and leave because it's services-based. They can can relocate during hurricane season. There are some that operate in New York in the summer and then in Puerto Rico in the winter. So most likely they weren't even there anyway. But Mm -hmm. then the other big industry that's uh, in Puerto Rico, of course, is uh, pharmaceuticals. And so we're going to see disruptions uh, in terms of supplies of pharmaceuticals potentially for a couple of years yet uh, based on what happened in in Puerto Rico and a fundamental lack of of resilience and preparedness. And a little bit of shameless self-promotion. I had a piece in uh, Fortune uh, looking at the pharmaceutical industry and looking at sort of the context in which businesses operate for their own continuity and, uh, you know, the need to sort of look at uh, investing in broader community resilience for that. But um, from from your perspective as well, too, uh, I'm curious about, so how, how do you prevent this from happening? Um, obviously, there's an intersection of, of public policy with private sector and there's only so much that you can do with an internal planning process. But so what is the the at that intersection there? What does this teach us for moving forward for vulnerable areas for both industries that are looking at their own viability as well as uh, policy as a whole? Yeah. So a lot of this has to be uh, resilience shouldn't just be something that happens in an office in the corner uh, of every organization where there's like, you know, a, a small team of people who are obsessed with this and then not talking to anybody else. Everybody has a stake in this. So so awareness becomes a really key issue because this is not something that people are thinking about every day like maybe some of us are. Uh, they just think about it when it's happening. So mm-hmm. the more we can get resilience language added into our, our 
regular norms, our regular policies as just sort of a, an add-on piece. Okay, so we're looking at this as a strategy. It may be a lean and efficient, really cost-effective strategy, but have we also considered, uh, you know, what if a piece of that breaks down? Is that gonna take down our entire business? Let's make sure that we have some resilience built into that strategy uh, from day one as part of our regular planning process. And like I said, uh, business continuity as a discipline has evolved so much that it's really being considered a core piece of strategic planning for those organizations that are the most resilient and forward thinking because they recognize that they can't just assume that everything is going to go according to plan. That never happens. So you do need to have people who are kind of on the payroll who are, uh, whose job it is to think about, okay, what if it doesn't go according to plan? What if something breaks? How do we deal with that? And then those people are often those who are responsible for kind of the public-private partnerships. And that's really essential in an economy like ours where, like I said, 85% of critical infrastructure is in the hands of the private sector. Mm -hmm. The government can't just, you know, wave a magic wand and make resilience happen. That can happen, for example, uh, in an economy that functions very differently, like China. You know, this is a very different conversation uh, that we have with DRI China and at our conference in Beijing than the conference that we have here in the United States. So here, um, public-private partnerships become really essential. And it's an organization like ours that is going to uh, help to facilitate that conversation and make it, make it work, because regulation and policy is often very outdated very quickly. So it works better if you have sort of these, uh, these partnerships, these information sharing agreements where uh, the private organizations and then the government agencies kind of, can kind of work together to create solutions to problems. And in communities where this um, partnership has a long history, like New York City, uh, we do see them uh, responding better uh, in the case of, of crisis. Miami is another good example. You know, you bring up an interesting point as well, too, with an internationally facing organization is that the whole context of the public-private partnership is different depending on the corporate culture, but the overall system of governance as well. Do you see a lot of variability uh, across the globe in the way that you sort of do the work, or is it more kind of changing around the headers and the core work really, really remains the same? No, there's a ton of difference, which is really fascinating for me. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. In fact, I uh, I started at DRI actually running our international practice, mm-hmm. so helping to create training partnerships to bring this knowledge and information and the certification programs to other countries. A lot of that came with uh, localizing the content. So I talked a little bit about our professional practices, and in uh, professional practice five is about incident incident response, which has a lot to do with you know, ICS, incident management systems, um, lines of authority, for example. Um, And then professional practice 10 is coordination with external agencies and public entities. That varies dramatically from country to country. Also, uh, the regulatory landscape varies. And some of that is, and then there's the cultural factors. And then when you're figuring out which which, uh, industries are kind kind of lead the way and be the most prepared in a country, so like, for example, in Malaysia, where we have a really strong presence, a lot of that was uh, driven by Petronas, by uh, oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a national company. So uh, they really kind of led the charge. They had the finances to do it. They understood the need. And they also understand that as a national strategy, 
Malaysia is a really good option for sort of back office solutions for uh, uh, the neighboring economy, Singapore, where we have a really strong presence, for example. Uh, Singapore is a little bit more vulnerable to some of those shocks. If Malaysia can demonstrate that as a country they have a national strategy for preparedness and that they're going to be robust and resilient, then they become a really great um, option for, for back office. And that's why the, um, the Minister of Science and Technology, who's a member of parliament, uh, spoke at our conference uh, a couple of years ago, last year, um, to to endorse the program and say, you know, this is really vital for our national strategy to be a leader in this space. You know, that's really interesting because it, it, it also implies that, that we may be at the cusp of, a, of another evolution sort of in disaster resilience and in business continuity where nations that are looking to attract foreign investment if the industry is looking more and more at the vulnerability and the disaster vulnerability for where they operate, that may be something that becomes part of the calculation or maybe already is part of the calculation just as tax incentives are and tariffs and, and other governance structure and infrastructure considerations for doing that. Um, are, are you seeing some of that or am I just kind of making that up? No, we're definitely seeing that and particularly uh, like I said, you know, disaster recovery is where we get our name from. And in the old days, that was all about technology recovery is what that means. And then it was business continuity. We're looking at business and strategy. We're not just, uh, you know, a part of the IT team. And now suddenly, because of technology's huge importance to all organizations, uh, technology is cool again. And when, when we talk to our certified professionals, we do an annual survey. And you know the top five risks that they're concerned about are all technology related. And um, so what we're seeing, for example, a lot of this is regionally driven. Uh, there's new cyber legislation in China, which talks about you know any of the backups of customer data have to be kept within China. Mm -hmm. Then we have the, the GDPR, the privacy re regulations out of Europe. And because mm -hmm. most of these large companies are going to in some way uh, service the the European market that leads to European uh, regulation and policy potentially dictating uh, worldwide strategies and behavior by these large organizations that will have repercussions for absolutely everybody. So this space becomes a really interesting area um, where business continuity does directly impact uh, strategy. You know, it's uh, I, I've spent a lot of uh, you know my career sort of looking at and trying to understand the public sector and how it can influence private sector participation and resilience and incentivize things better. And just in in this course of this podcast, it's opening my eyes a lot more to how the private sector can also influence public sector decision making around resilience. Uh, and um, I, I guess I have a lot of uh, things to think about regarding my life choices, but it's uh, <laughs> uh, but it's obviously a uh, a two-way street where, where industry can have a profound impact in choosing where it does business and what it requires in order to do business. And it really is, um, uh, for lack of a better term, a dialogue between these different sectors um, and the requirements of each sector. Um, Definitely. I, I mentioned that uh, that report that we just put out, which it's uh, our Future Vision Committee annual trends report. Mm -hmm. And it does uh, include a survey that goes out to all of our certified professionals globally. And very interestingly for this year, the number one key risk, um, of course, I would assume that it would be something technology related, but I was mm -hmm. really interested to see that it's actually state-sponsored cyber attacks. And number two is criminal cyber attacks, hmm. which I find really interesting. Of course, some of our professionals do work for government agencies, but we do see a lot of uh, private sector 
organizations that are, are seriously concerned about the impact of state-sponsored cyber uh, on their organization and on their ability to deliver services. You know, I, I've been hearing that a lot, too, that there's um, kind of the criminal enterprises, but that a lot of the state-sponsored uh, really espionage for uh, competitive mm -hmm. advantage within industries and things like that. Um, so opening up, I shouldn't even say opening up, it's been around for quite a while, but um, is increasingly really at the center of a lot of the, the top concerns. Um, so um, another evolution in the threat profile that folks have to contend with. Yeah, it definitely is because, you know, on the one hand, you might have a, a criminal cyber attack where your systems are ransomed. And increasingly mm -hmm. what we're seeing is a lot of organizations just decide to pay the ransom, uh, which is not what the government wants them to do. But in a lot of cases, that's that's the most efficient thing for them to do. But with mm -hmm. a cyber attack that's state-sponsored, that's often not going to be so obvious as a criminal attack that has financial gain as its primary motive. The state-sponsored ones might be there to steal intellectual property and trade secrets. So you might not even ever realize that they're on your system. They might be there for years. And then suddenly we see you know, a very similar product being launched in another market that looks very similarly to yours and might be cheaper to produce and undermine your you know, market advantage. And what is the uh, implication of that in terms of our overall uh, national competitive strategy? And is that something that the US government can really control for uh, when, like I said, we don't have a lot of state-owned enterprises or national champions that can be directly controlled by, by the government, nor would we want them to be. So that's where, again, public-private partnerships become absolutely essential and the ability of business and government to work together to be nimble um, and dealing with these challenges for the next decade. Yeah, you know, this is uh, just opening up a whole nother realm, and I, I'm increasingly convinced I think we'll have to do <laughs> at least a few episodes focused on cybersecurity <laughs> and cyber threats as well, too. Um, but with that, I mean, uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, both looking in terms of internal to business continuity and the values for that, but also the intersection with community resilience and, and public sector promotion of disaster preparedness and the interplay on how each sector can drive the other and influence the other and work together. But for folks who want to know more about DRI and learn more about the certification and, and the work that you guys are doing, or, or follow you as well uh, directly, what, what are the best ways for them to do that on social media, the websites, things like that? Yeah, we definitely have social media channels. A great way to, to follow us and get involved is on DRII.org. You go there and you create a free DRI account. That'll put you on our mailing list. We have a newsletter that goes out every couple of weeks that has a lot of great information about what we are doing, ways to get involved, and then also kind of what's happening in the industry, um, in, in the profession that people need to be thinking about. We have a webinar series. We have an annual conference. We put out a lot of white papers and so forth. Uh, so that's a really great way to keep up with us. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and all of that. Same with me. I'm easy to find. I think I'm the only Chloe Demrovsky in the whole world. <laughs> so easy enough to find. <laughs> Yeah, I find with a last name like Slugamelch, it's uh, there's not a lot of noise if I uh, Google my name to see <laughs> what's going on out there. Uh, yeah. Um, well, thanks again for taking the time to talk uh, with us on all of this and for doing all the work that you're doing. Um, and again, I think just being at that intersection, working with the private sector, that represents so much of our resilience infrastructure, um, yet often is overshadowed by by more of the gravity of the public sector and the public actors and, and the politics of all of that. And just thanks for talking us through all of this. It was my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks.
All right, so joining me now is Jim Paturis. Jim is the director of the Yale New Haven Health System Center for Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response. Uh, he also has the dubious distinction of being my former boss, uh, so really an expert in managing disasters, if not from, from that perspective. So uh, thanks for joining us, Jim. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, can you give us an overview? Talk to us a little bit about what is the Yale New Haven Health System Center for Emergency Preparedness Disaster Response? What is its role uh, internally, externally? Well, it began shortly after 9-11, um, about 15 years ago. At the time, the uh, health system was uh, still forming in terms of uh, all of its partners. And I believe what was really going on at that time was the need to evaluate how well prepared we were as hospitals, as a health system to withstand the events that had just unfolded. Um, so what happened was that we formed um, an internal department called the Office of Emergency Preparedness within the health system. Uh, at the same time as that was happening, the state of Connecticut, uh, through the federal grant process at the time, came to us and said, could you help us? And so, in effect, what happened was both the Office of Emergency Preparedness and the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response were stood up at the same time. The difference was that for the internal projects that we continue to work on, that's obviously to help develop a level of resiliency for the Yellow Haven Health System. And as you mentioned, the outside activities are really geared for helping other organizations, mostly health and medical organizations, uh, in the immediate area, but even across the country, and in some cases across the world, um, work on their projects. That's great. That's, uh, you know, uh, on the podcast and uh, elsewhere, you know, we, we hear a lot about uh, hospital preparedness as part of, you know, systems preparedness and public health preparedness. Uh, but I think one of the perspectives that you guys really bring is also this inward-facing responsibility and sort of on this theme of business continuity. So, with that, how does that work within a healthcare facility? Who are the key stakeholders? Who are the key folks you need to work with? Well, for business continuity, um, one of the interesting things about it is, in my opinion, is that it's much broader than what we would think of in traditional disaster planning. Not that those same partners could or shouldn't be involved, but when you begin to look at what we would traditionally call internal crises, internal disasters, it means crossing over every single service line and department function to make sure you capture as many of the issues as need to be identified. Mm -hmm. So with the these key stakeholders, who are some of the external stakeholders as well too? And again, I guess thinking more about, you know, the continuity of the healthcare system, government agencies, community members, things like that, who do you work with? Well, these days, uh, most of that is occurring through the healthcare coalitions that the federal government has been uh, pushing now for the last number of years. And so those partners include, as you mentioned, uh, not only the hospitals, but our local health, uh, public health, local health department partners, our emergency medical service, our EMS agency partners, our local emergency management partners, as well as the state partners at both the Homeland Security and health department level. It also includes a lot of the other healthcare facilities that deliver services such as home care, visiting nurse services, long-term care, urgent care, and organizations like that. You know, I've always found the model of, uh, of this center in particular to be really interesting because of that hybrid of that inward looking and external looking. Uh, with the other interview we have on this episode with uh, Chloe Demirovsky, we talk a lot about how, you know, businesses 
do their business in the context of a community, and, and healthcare seems to be even more so reliant on those different community partners and emergency management, but also having internal kind of business requirements that they need to meet every day. You're right. There are both business, regulatory, and legal requirements that hospitals are very sensitive to and mm-hmm. do need to meet those needs. And And you're right. I mean, when you look at becoming a resilient organization and using business continuity to do that, it involves many levels within an organization. And I would suggest it starts at the top. Mm -hmm. If you can't get executive leadership buy-in to the need to be resilient, the program won't work. It'll flounder. Uh, Other key players within the health system, finance, Mm -hmm. legal, risk, administration, operations, all those areas, nursing, all of the clinical, non-clinical, business, technical, information technology, communications are all essential areas, as they are for external disaster planning, but even more so with internal or business continuity. You know, those are all, uh, I think, good points in terms of the regulatory and the legal. And there's been a lot of pressure on healthcare in general these last few years that has been not necessarily disaster specific. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the non-disaster challenges that healthcare organizations face and how does that sort of fall into um, disaster planning? First and foremost, it's staffing. There's mm-hmm. always an issue for staffing. Funding continues to be a challenge. You know, these days with the emphasis on population health, uh, there's clearly a need to have community-level partners because I think anybody that's working within the population health environment understand that, as they say, it takes the village to raise the child. Yeah. It takes all of the players to be involved with improving the health of a population. And and again, you know, so how does that relate back to business continuity or disaster planning? Well, in my opinion, I think they're linked. Um, it, I've always talked to people that if you can't How we build our disaster response systems requires everyday systems to be in place. Mm -hmm. Without those everyday systems, no disasters will be able to be functional or produce the outcomes that you need. And so to a certain degree, population health or working with community partners is no different. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering internally as well, uh, how... How do you engage these different groups? You mentioned it starts with leadership, and there's really this sort of horizontal integration that needs to happen with different departments that have their own pressures and their own stresses and their own requirements. How do you sort of uh, negotiate that and navigate that towards uh, greater resiliency and greater business continuity? Well, first is having champions. Mm -hmm. So again, if we can have executive leadership champions, and we're we're blessed to have some of those here in Yellow Haven Health, that's a first step. Um, But you also need folks like myself and you, others who really uh, have drank the Mm Kool-Aid and and truly understand the importance of this. But I think the third and probably one of the most important elements is developing and conducting both a risk assessment and business impact analysis. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is because once once the results of an assessment are put in front of decision makers and they see the risks that they have, it helps them to in effect, buy on to the importance of developing a resilient organization. And again, if you just look around the country at any of the issues that have happened over the last few years, from hurricanes to, you know, biological attacks um, or events that have unfolded, such as that the Ebola situation, mm-hmm. and you look at the impact on organizations for that, it really opens people's eyes to the need to be 
buying into and supporting business continuity. You know, that, I appreciate that point as well, too, on the business impact and needing to sort of translate risk into the business impact. I remember in the early days of healthcare and public health preparedness sort of getting frustrated and, and thinking, well, they don't get how important this is. And over the years, really learning that at the same time, I also didn't understand the financial pressures that hospitals are under. Um, I use the anecdote a lot that, you know, consolidation of the healthcare industry has permanently closed more hospitals in New York City than Hurricane Sandy temporarily closed, that that these are everyday life and death stressors. And so translating the impact from sort of this notional kind of human suffering into this is about the survivability of the business absolutely. and meeting the mission in the community. You're absolutely right. And in the case of hospitals, the business is taking care of patients. Yes. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, hospitals, uh, many people may not be aware that hospitals on average function on anywhere between a 1% to 3% margin. Mm. Uh, if you were to ask any other private corporation in the world if they would be willing to go into business with a 1% to 3% margin, they'd probably think you're crazy. Right. Uh, however, hospitals do that. So what it means is that even within those limited margins, it makes the sensitivity or the need to be resilient and to have business continuity and get business back up and running so critical. I remember going through uh, my MBA training, and uh, I think the, the average was about 12% of the average return on the stock market. And basically, in a for-profit corporation, if you couldn't return more than 12% to the shareholders, the project wasn't worth it. Uh, but in a nonprofit and in a community service environment, there's a value to the community as a whole that sure. is... Um, uh, that is provided, and if that business is interrupted, as you as you mentioned, not only does it impact the survivability of the business, but also the value that it provides to the community. You know, Jeff, you're absolutely right. There's what we call the financial value, but we think equally important is the relational value mm -hmm. that you're speaking to. Is that you know these hospitals are for the most part across the United States, generally the largest employers in their communities. Um, they are the one of the few organizations in a community that are open 24/7. Mm -hmm. um, and many people in the community rely on them. And one of the things I'd, I'd like to offer is that we talk a lot about hospitals responding to external disasters, similar to what's going on today in New York City and what mm -hmm. we see almost every day now across the globe. My suggestion is that if you can't be resilient as an organization, your chance of supporting an external crisis is even more limited. Mm -hmm. So I guess my point is that being able to tie business continuity and organizational resiliency with how we respond to external events go hand in hand. Yeah, and, and of course, the reference to New York City, we're recording this on December 11th. So this is uh, at this very moment where, you know, kind of glued to the TV, looking at the situation at the Port Authority where there's an apparent explosion and uh, certainly all these systems being put to the test. And of course, our thoughts are with all those involved there. Um, so thinking through business continuity and for hospitals and things like that, I think we've talked a little bit about the, the business incentive, a little bit about the community uh, value that comes from it. What are the other pressures? You mentioned legal and regulatory before. So what are some of the different kinds of things, either overt regulation or maybe accreditation? I know sure. you guys are joint commission accredited, things like that. Well, you're absolutely right. There are the joint commission accrediting organizations. Now there's the new CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services final rule that that was unfolded a couple of weeks ago, uh, all which have with them a regulatory impact that if something is not done, 
and you are visited or, or, or receive a site visit from a surveyor and you can't be in compliance, you do run the risk of your Medicare and Medicare reimbursement being jeopardized. Again, Jeff, that goes back to the whole issue of finances mm -hmm. because, you know, most hospitals in the United States are greater than 60% of their revenue comes from the federal government in terms of either Medicare or Medicaid. Yeah. So that's a pretty big, um, I remember when that rule started being floated, that's when a lot of people started really paying attention to emergency preparedness who maybe previously had thought, well, it's being taken care of, I'll do my thing, they'll do their thing. All of a sudden it made it up to the CFO's office and I'm not saying specifically here, but across the healthcare mm -hmm. industry really, um, I think, created a lot of attention at that leadership level. Well, and if I could, um, one of the things both CMS and Joint Commission have begun to develop more of is the need for being resilient. While they don't always come out and clearly use the words business continuity, it's implied in many of the regulatory standards that they've put in place. Yeah. So another dynamic I think worth mentioning, too, is that we're seeing healthcare systems get larger and larger. And so it's no longer the single hospital, right? It's the larger systems. Now, the Allen New Haven healthcare system has been a multi-hospital system for, you know, quite some time. 1995. 1995. It's a good year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, music hit its peak in the uh, 90s grunge era. No, um, but, um, but with that in mind, how does that play into the work that you do as well, too? Because we've sort of made this externally facing and inward facing, but even inward facing each hospital is sort of its own entity within a larger system, Absolutely. Right? They have their own culture. They have their own size. They, they have a certain hospitals have a different level of service they can provide from the highest level to a more moderate level. Uh, and what that means for an organization like ours is time and effort, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that we still need to treat all of our network partners uh, within the health system equally. We need to make sure that their business continuity plans, their emergency management plans, uh, their operational uh, tactical plans are all in play. So as an entity sort of seated at, so the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response and its Office of Emergency Preparedness functions, so folks understand, sit at sort of the corporate level within the Yale New Haven health system. So um, this is a loaded question, but <laughs> to elaborate is that, so does, does the office then have authority over these different hospitals, Bridgeport, Greenwich, Yale New Haven, or is it more of a consulting type of arrangement? How does that work? Well, historically, we've treated it as a consulting arrangement. Mm -hmm. uh, we consider our internal uh, corporate partners, uh, all as we do our external corporate uh, partners. However, that's changed here. Mm -hmm. uh, in the last uh, six months, we have uh, put in place here what's now being called the Emergency Management and Business Continuity Council, um, which was approved by the Chief Operating Officer of the Health System three months ago. And in fact, he serves as the executive sponsor. So what is the MBEC, as we call it, uh, do. Well, to your point, Jeff, it really does now take this whole issue of preparedness mm -hmm. to a much higher level. The representatives on that group are all senior level executives, all vice president and above, all decision makers. And what it is now providing is a forum for continuity and consistency of everything we do from how we budget for what we need to purchase to how we train, to how we respond, and ultimately to how we recover. That's great. So it sounds like the leadership pieces are really, you know, you guys have a great model for sort of working across these. I, I spent some time talking with another um, private sector organization, not healthcare, 
And very similarly, at the corporate level, they had a lot of sort of standard setting, but at the individual business units is where a lot of the budgets were and a lot of the authority wasn't. So similarly, you know, uh, it sounds like you guys have a great model for sort of reconciling that and bringing, bringing that leadership together. How does that then translate down into, you mentioned it, it starts at the top and works its way all the way into the departments and the individuals. And so what are some of those departmental responsibilities that you would see with that sort of aggregate sure. into resilience? Well, one of those would be um, making sure that each department uh, understands it has to be involved in both conducting a business impact analysis, as well as then helping to develop their departmental plan, as you said, that rolls up to the hospital, that then rolls up to the health system. It also means that they have to be committed to revising those plans mm -hmm. on an annual basis, making sure their staff are attending all the requisite trainings that are required, and when need be, participating actively in any drills and exercises. Yeah, you know, we uh, work with a lot of uh, nonprofits, um in my current role as well as um, uh, when I was here at this center. But the one of the things I learn in, in talking with a lot of these groups is they, they don't see that necessarily see themselves as responders. And one of the things we try and talk to them about is that if you keep doing what you're doing, you're providing a service to the community. And that removes the number of people who require additional assistance. It sounds very similar in the hospital situation. If a, if a department can have its own continuity plan, then the hospital system can continue to rely on that function, whether it's payroll or surgery or absolutely, whatever. you're absolutely right. And in fact, it was it was an eye opener for me about 20 years ago in 1995, actually, when we first started doing business continuity. Was you know you thought you knew what each department did, yeah, and then you sat down with them and you began to develop their business continuity plan. It did two things, or meant more than two, but I'll give you the two major ones. It made each of the departments appreciative that you were looking at their issues mm -hmm. and that they were actually helping to develop the plans they had had in their head for many years. The second thing that I think it did, second large thing it, it did, was it provided someone like me or the people who now run those BCP programs here with a very good education on what the departments actually do. Yeah. And you'd be surprised that you would learn things that you never knew uh, a service line or a mm -hmm. department did in support of ultimately patient care. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I want to hit on the first point and then the second, but that the, um, um, yeah, this notion that that uh, departments start to see a value in emergency preparedness. I remember, you know, in the early days talking about smallpox and anthrax and things like that, and some people really engaged on that and really saw that as a threat and others thought, well, I'm not going to deal with smallpox. You know, I work in the payroll department, I work in, you know, it's not my bag. But then when, with business continuity, starting to see a value for themselves and, and uh, to get folks to engage who maybe wouldn't engage on some of the uh, um, nightmare scenarios that are very rare and unlikely. No, you're absolutely right. It, it provides them with some ownership. Yeah. And the other piece you mentioned is that you, you sort of peel back the onion and you start, maybe onion's a bad metaphor because it, it smells, but um, you start to peel back the layers and you see uh, all of these different services that are rely upon other services. Uh, so I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about both within as well as external to the healthcare system. We talked a little bit about what you need to do yourself, but what do you rely on other people doing in order to do it? You, again, you, you identify such an important topic. We call that the upstream and downstream effect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the upstream effect of, uh, let's pick on um, the laboratory for a second. Yeah. You know, you say, okay, well, the laboratory provides a specific service. 
Um, so what are its upstream effects of that? Mm-hmm. Um, who is it doing this service for? How often does it have to provide this service? There's also the, the downstream effect of that. And I guess it's important because what we have found is that a department, for instance, will say, I don't have to provide this service. If this service is out of commission for four hours, we can survive. Mm-hmm. Then as you delve a little deeper, you find that well, that department, let's say it's the lab, can be without a particular laboratory procedure for four hours. However, we just found out that the emergency department can't be without that laboratory service for more than two hours. So that's when we have this disconnect, which becomes a connect, because what happens is we then go back and say, well, lab, while you think you can last for four hours, you need to be done. You need to be ready to service this group in two hours. Yeah. And so it, it's a give and take. Yeah. It's a learning environment. It's a give and take to realize that in the end, we have a plan that meets both the needs of the primary department and those internal and external support services that they have. Remember, some of these these uh, upstream or downstream partners may be internal or may be external to the health system. Right. And, and uh, jumping on some of the external ones, you know, I, I think the a common misconception too is also the the level of uh, medical supplies that are out there, right? It's a relatively small number of medical suppliers that work on, like many businesses, just-in-time inventory systems, things like that, right? So there must be a lot of work with uh, external suppliers, food service, laundry. I don't Absolutely. know if laundry is done in-house. Yep. Or- uh, it depends on the hospital. Okay. So, But you're right. Laundry is one. And the whole issue of supply chain, you know, we... We tend to make a, a, a joke of it, but for us, when we look at the ability to surge or be resilient, it, it involves the, what we call the four S's. You need to have staff, mm-hmm. space, stuff, and systems. Mm-hmm. And the one we're talking about right now is the stuff, mm-hmm. uh, meaning, you know, how is the supply chain process? Can it be disrupted? Absolutely. It can be disrupted all over the world. Mm-hmm. That's okay so long as you've got the backup supplies and medical countermeasures to continue operations. That is a challenge for all hospitals for many reasons. Staff, not not staff, I'm sorry. Space is one, meaning how much can you store? What about the inventory? Can it be managed so you have a a vendor-managed inventory in place Mm -hmm. so that you can rotate stock? Then there's the cost associated with that. And, And... not last, but about an important one we're dealing with right now is how much do you purchase? Yeah. And what is the formula you're using as a best guess to decide that if we had a biological event or a pandemic, as an example, or some radiological or chemical event, how many patients would we be treating? How many staff would we be treating? Yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, I recently did a presentation. I was talking about, you know, there are sort of three levels of response, right? In healthcare, there's you know, most organizations are usually dealing with two. They're dealing with internally sort of disruption and trying to prevent that disruption. And then if you're a response agency, actually going out there and, and doing a response and doing something external in addition to that. But healthcare has this in-between piece where regardless of your response, you're going to see a surge in services. So not only do you have pressure on a reduced capacity because of what other whatever the event is, but you have an increase in the number of people coming through the front door and requiring the service. So you sort of have this, um, the distance between the capacity and the need gets even greater. Again, Jeff, good point. Uh, and just let's use some numbers. We have, uh, so there are patients, but mm-hmm. when you start having these kinds of events, it's not just a traditional patient. 
So for Yale New Haven Health System, when we plan, we have 24,000 employees. However, when we plan now, we look at 36,000 people. Mm-hmm. Where's the other 12,000 coming from? From patients, from visitors, yeah. from contractors, from from physicians who belong to the medical school. You know, and I think when hospitals prepare, they need to take into account, as you said, that it's not just the traditional patients coming from the outside. It may be including patients who are already here. It may be including staff, visitors, mm-hmm. family. Yeah, yeah. And I know uh, in some planning and, and some of the stuff here and in other healthcare systems too, it's also how do you sort of keep that pressure from happening unnecessarily if things can be handled at the shelters. I've heard of uh, hospitals sending medical teams to shelters to run clinic hours to try to keep, one, help keep people in a less acute care setting, which is good for people themselves, uh, but also reduces pressure on the hospital so that those resources are available for people who need them even more. And in fact, to that point, the healthcare coalitions is in a unique position to actually help that if it's done correctly. Meaning that because all the partners are at the table, as I mentioned earlier, if you can use some of those partners in a crisis to keep people from even showing up at the emergency department door, for instance, can they go to a healthcare clinic? Mm-hmm. Will the legal and, and EMS services be allowed to do that? Mm-hmm. Can they show up at an urgent care center? Well, what about on the back end? What if we have to discharge people sooner than we normally would? Are there really beds available in long-term care to handle that? What about home care? Mm-hmm. Can home care surge up to meet that need? It just gives you an example of how, again, everyone has to work together to maintain community resiliency. You know, I think a lot of this also sort of really blows the doors open on business continuity and uh, healthcare is really at the center of that because it's so intertwined with all these community stakeholders in ways that are, are much more visible, but probably just as real for other, you know, less traditional, um, well, I, that's not the right word, but for other kinds of businesses that maybe um, see themselves as serving the community in different ways by selling them a product or selling them something like that. Well, you know, you're right. In fact, I've always thought that hospitals were in a uh, unique place. Most businesses who aren't healthcare uh, have to have business continuity plans. They've mm-hmm. had them for 30, 40 years now and, and, and need to because that is their disaster plan. In hospitals, we have to have two. We have the traditional disaster plan that we've been doing for many years for those things that happen outside the doors and show up at the front door calling it the emergency department. But now what's happened is we have realized um, that we need business continuity plans too. So we have to figure out, well, what happens when it is something that's internal? And could you be in a position where it's both? You could absolutely do that. Look what happened during the uh, the hurricanes in the last uh, five to ten years when places like New York University Medical Center uh, had to evacuate. They still had people coming in their front door that quickly shut down. At the same time, they had to move the entire facility outside the door. Yeah. You know, so you live in this uh, sort of yin-yang world of, yeah. of an external disaster and an internal disaster. And, and I, you know, I think that just goes to show that across the sectors that, you know, we uh, on the nonprofit side have a lot to look to in the, the business sector and some of the tools built up over the years for business continuity. But then there's also some lessons from healthcare and from other ways, too, on what is that sort of symbiotic relationship with the community as that becomes more and more an effect on uh, on businesses of all kinds. 
Um, thanks for taking the time to, to talk through this with all of us. I know we're just scratching the surface and uh, hopefully we'll have you back and talk through any range of healthcare related issues. But uh, how can people learn more about the center? Uh, where can they find you guys? And well, they can just uh, a, a quick Google of Yale New Haven Health, YNHHS. Uh, they could put in the acronym for the center, uh, Center for Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Response. So if they just typed in YNHHS, C-E-P-D-R, uh, the uh, website would show up and they could find out more. Uh, they can also uh, get in touch with you uh, and uh, or me directly, and uh, we'd be happy to help them. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for joining us, and thanks for all the work that, uh, that you guys are doing. Thanks for uh, giving me this opportunity. Stay safe. And that's it for this year. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to Chloe and Jim for all the great insights and lessons that they shared and taking the time to talk to all of us. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. Let's keep the conversation going. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. Send us an email at DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. And whatever you do, have a great holiday season, and please stay safe out there.